0: Uh, We're in the middle, in the middle, we're actually at the very end of a series that we've been doing for several weeks now called Questioning God. If you haven't been here for any of the series, by the way, it's been, I think this is like the 10th, maybe, in the series. It's like the series that never ends. We're actually going to end it today, but uh, what we've done is we've we've said we're going to take the top questions. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't been here, you can go to stonebrook.tv at any time. And check out the, uh, the other messages. Um, they're there all the time. You can tell your friends about it, too, if they'd sort of like to check it out. I know we, have, we actually have a, quite a few people all across the country that are listening to it. It sort of amazes me. But uh, you can check those messages out there, sort of catch up with where, where we've been. But the, the premise is we're taking the top five questions. For example, one of the first questions we talked about um, is the fact... Thank you, Joe. You are amazing about a very small hand, golf clap for Joe, just a golf clap, very nice, wonderful, thank you, he is amazing though, I tell him all the time, um, one of the questions that we asked at the beginning of the series, you know, people had was, if, and this is one that comes up all the time, is if God is so loving and all powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world, and it becomes an obstacle to where, you know, you're telling me God loves and God can do anything, but why, why what about all this suffering, how about that, And it becomes an obstacle, so we address that. And we address different questions. And so we're on what's going to be the last question. This is actually the fourth question in the series, but this is like the series that doesn't end. So since we dealt with the fifth question, the fifth question, by the way, that we would have gotten to, uh, I actually addressed it right before we left the warehouse when we were at the other building, and you can check it out on on stonebrook.tv, is um, people say, you know, one of the things that Christianity has... Uh, they're so exclusive. They say that Jesus is the only way to God. What's up with that? Why, what is with all this exclusive, exclusivity? It, aren't there many, many paths to God? And so you can check that out. We we answered that before. But the question that we're on has sort of become a mini-series. This is the fourth time that we're addressing this question. And this is by far, by far, the number one question that people are asking, the number one obstacle when people are considering uh, you know, taking that step across the line of faith toward Jesus. And there's so much emotion, so much um, on, on either side, sometimes just vitriol, where people get so upset back and forth. And it's this very simple question that, why does it seem like so many Christians are homophobic? Or why, why, do, why do Christians have, a hard, have such a big deal with homosexuality? So um, we've been addressing that particular question. And by the way, at any time while we're talking here this morning, If you have a question, you can send us a text. You guys have sent in uh, great questions. That's what we want to be as a church. We want to be where there can be a conversation. And uh, you can text it to 415-SB-ROCKS at any time. And we we try to take some time at the end of each message and address those. If we don't get to that question, what we're going to do next week is I'll sit down and we're going to shoot a video of the questions that we haven't had time to get to just because I'm a little too long-winded or whatever. And uh, we'll put that up on our, our Facebook page and on our website. But you can shoot us a text there. But uh, the, the question becomes, what, what about this homosexuality issue? And it's been, been, to me, a very, very interesting series. I've had a lot of really great feedback, a lot of conversations afterwards with people. Uh, people are beginning to actually think through what they believe and what Jesus has to say, because that's what we want to be as a church. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find out... How, do, how does Jesus view things? How, because we believe that Jesus is the representation of God on the earth. He's God in a bod, as we'll see actually this morning, that before Jesus came, people did not understand God accurately or correctly. But Jesus came as the exact, Hebrew says, he's the exact representation of God. He's the, he's the perfect illustration. If you want to know what God thinks, what God will do, how God will interact, you look at Jesus... And we look at him and we want to become more like him and uh, use that in our everyday life, how we interact with people. So um, so what, what we've been doing is talking about the subject. Like I said, we've had some good feedback. It's been interesting because for four weeks the subject has been basically homosexuality. I've just basically called it like the gay series. That just, they were talking about you know, what, does the, what do Christians, how are we to interact with LGBT community? But we really haven't talked about homosexuality, homosexuality really at all, hardly. I've, I've mentioned it a few times. The basic premise of this series is how do we interact, how do we respond with people that we, with whom we disagree? How are we as a church and Jesus followers called to live because there will never, ever, ever be theological consensus? We've had a few people, I know last week it was, it was interesting. Somebody told me that you know I was sitting next to a person, when you introduced the subject, they got up, they went and got their kids out of Kids Rock, and they left um, before we even had a chance to have the conversation. And to me, that's unfortunate. But I'm glad that we, we go to a church where we can just talk about these things and see what Jesus said. So just to review real quickly, um, we basically said there's four different views that people would have when it comes to the subject of, of what does the Bible say about being gay, and acting on that particular desire. Number one would be this, and we're just trying to equally represent them because there would be people that go to church here that would hold one of these four different views. It's To me, this is such a very, very interesting experiment, what we're doing. I've, I've never experienced it in my life where a group of people can come together, go to the same church, and disagree on so many things, even sometimes vehemently, but we, we come together and, and stay unified around the fact that we love Jesus and we believe He's the Christ, the Son of the living God, who gave Himself for our sin. But the first of you would be simply that homosexuality is a sin. You can't be accepted by God as long as you embrace homosexuality. If you, even, if you have that desire or that orientation, that in itself is a sin. That is something that you would need to be delivered from. That was something that would need to be changed in order. Go ahead, look at the ductwork. There you go. That's an amazing thing. In our new building, by the way, the ductwork won't do that. And actually, after being here for a while, I think I'm going to miss it just a little bit. This is so cool. But uh so that would be one view, and they would have scripture to back up that particular view. The second view would be that simply uh being gay is not in itself sin. Having that desire, that orientation, that's simply the direction that I'm wired, that's the direction my desire goes. Um, Just like you were born and have just a natural inclination uh, toward heterosexuality. My natural inclination is toward homosexuality. But however, all homosexual acts are sinful. And then those that would hold that view would have certain scriptures that they would back up their view. The third view would be that homosexual activity outside of a committed monogamous relationship is forbidden. They would say that because the Bible was written in a culture and at a time where a committed, faithful relationship between same-sex partners was not an option, was not something that was even thought of, then neither the Old Covenant nor the Apostle Paul and the things that he said could possibly be addressing this. That what those scriptures were addressing would be a a relationship that was uh, promiscuous or a relationship where one person was dominating another. And we know from history that certainly happened with the patron-client relationship in the Roman Empire. That but a committed monogamous relationship was not something that was even thought of or an option. Therefore, those scriptures are not addressing that. And because God wants us to be committed and faithful to one another, then that would be okay in that particular relationship. And this particular view also would have certain scriptures to back up their point of view. And then the fourth view would simply be that homosexuality is not at all a sin. That uh, perhaps they would view that the the Bible is an archaic book that was written at a culture that didn't have a particular understanding and we live in a different day and time and so I don't even know why we're having this conversation, why in the world is God concerned about who I have sex with so we shouldn't even be having this conversation so those four views are to my, the best of my, my knowledge there may be nuances uh, you know between those but that would be the various, the various views that people would have but what we've tried to focus on and I hold, personally, one of those four views. Some of you who be clo- have, that would be closer to me would know a particular view that I hold. But what we've been addressing, and I, I hoped that we would get past some of the things we've been addressing, but it's something that we need to know, and I think that we've, we just haven't, in, as a church at large in the United States, haven't talked about it. We've taken more time. But... Um, we, we actually have, I'll sort of pause for a commercial announcement, we have a life group. And as you know at Stonebrook, we're, we're actually more concerned that you get in circles than you sit in rows. Circles are better than rows. You come on Sunday and that's wonderful, and you sit and you listen to a message. But where real relationships are built and where some of the deeper things can be discussed are in life groups. And sometimes I use this illustration. How many of you have ever went to buy a brand new car? bought a brand new car like off the showroom. Anybody? Isn't that a wonderful experience? Brand new car sitting there on the showroom. You walk in and there's that new Mercedes or that new Hummer or that new Volkswagen Beetle, whatever it is that you're happening to buy. And you know they're demonstrating, they're showing you all the wonderful features of this vehicle there on the showroom floor. But they don't change the oil on the showroom floor. If you need to have a new axle. or You need the differential gears changed or whatever. They do that in the shop. Well, there are certain things that you just can't get into on a Sunday morning. It's just the, the interaction isn't there. And that's why we say circles are better than rows. As you get into a life group, some of these things we can just drill down and really get into it. And the group that we do, then is, do that in is a group called Question Mark. My name's Mark. We ask questions. It's so creative. Don't you think? It took us like weeks to come up with that name. I'm being facetious. But... Um, when we have this group, if you'll come to that, it'll uh, probably be either the end of June, first part of July before we have it again. But uh, we'll sort of really get into the nuts and bolts of this. And the further questions you have that maybe didn't get answered, we can answer them there. But here's what we said about Jesus, because that's what this is all about. That Jesus came with this brand new paradigm. He, he changed the way that the religious people of that day viewed how we were to interact with people. Because there was a group of people that were religious in that day called the Pharisees. Who were very, very, very disciplined. They understand the Bible, understood the Bible as far as what it said. They had read the Bible. They were living the Bible better than any of us will ever accomplish it. They were doing an amazing, amazing job of keeping the letter of God's standards and God's laws. But Jesus came along and He sort of set their way of thinking on its head... Because Jesus put relationships before rules, he put people before principles, and he put love before law. And this caused quite a confrontation and a clash between Jesus and the religious people of, the, of his day. And uh, here's a question that we sort of want to ask today. When, when we're talking about this particular subject, so the, the, the subject always has to, this word always has to come to the surface. And that's this word that some people really like and some people hate to even mention. But is this, what is sin? What even is it? What, why does God care about certain things? What is, what is sin? You guys have an answer? What's a good, give me a good definition of sin. Rebellion against God's will. Rebellion against God's will. Okay. You got another one? Like what is, When you think of, when somebody says to you, oh, that's a sin. And you're like, oh no. Like, let's pretend I'm an outsider. And you're saying to me, Oh, you need to not do that. That's a sin. And I'm going to go, Oh my gosh, that's a sin. What's a sin? What are you going to tell me? Knowing what's right to do and failing to do it. Well, what makes something right to do and something not right to do? Jesus. Jesus. The Sunday school answer. Jesus. Just that. It's like one of my favorite stories. The Sunday school teacher is describing to these kids, Hey kids, there was this animal... It's a little little small animal, it's sort of furry, has this big furry tail and has these teeth and it eats nuts and climbs trees. What is that? And the little boy raised his hand and said, Well, I know the answer's gotta be Jesus, but it sure looks like sounds like a squirrel to me. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Jesus and, and all that. But what what is what is sin? What is it? Because we Christians are known. If you tell people you're a Christian, immediately you're known for, oh, you you have things that you're against and you're, you're talking about sin. That's what the church is known for. We talk about sin. Well, what is it? It's a what? A sports term. I've got to hear this, Tom. Wow. Tom, you get the gold star. That's what it actually means. It means missing the mark. The word sin actually means missing the mark. Like I said in first service, is actually what my wife does every time I leave town. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's just dismissing prayer. Missing the mark. It, it, it is a, it's an archery term. If you can imagine that, and, and I add this to it, I, I say that sin is missing the mark of God's ideal. It's what God had in mind when He created the world, when He created us, He had a certain way that this was to operate. It had a certain way that we were to operate, a certain way that we were to live that would be best for us and his creation as a whole. And if you can imagine an archery target on the wall and you're either shooting an arrow and I'm not good with shooting arrows so I prefer to shoot a gun. So if you can imagine that there's a mark, the, the center of that target is a bullseye. That's the ideal. That's the standard. If we're to shoot it, we're supposed to hit it right in the middle. Now, the interesting thing about God that Christians really don't don't uh, adhere to when they start talking about sin <clears throat> is the standard with God is perfection. Now, those of you that might consider yourself conservative, you think, well, as long as I miss a little bit to the right and not the left, then I'm okay. But now those are, there's some friends of mine that are liberal, and they're missing to the left, and they're not okay because they're missing. They're missing an inch to the left. I'm three inches to the right, but I'm better. No, the standard is the mark. The standard is perfection. And if the standard, let's say we're going to have an archery contest, and the, the object of it is to hit 50 out of 50 in the middle. That's the standard for receiving a prize, for receiving a trophy. Well, if you miss the first one, guess what? You're done. It doesn't matter if you're amazing for the, I'm, I hit the next 49, too bad. You're just as good as the person that's shooting the other direction. The standard is perfection. Missing the mark of God's ideal. So, what do we do with that knowledge? God has this plan. And there are certain things that people would consider sins. How did Jesus deal with that? We're going to start in John chapter 1 and verse 14. I'm going to go through this as quickly as I can. Um, because i want to get a little further than I did in the first service. The word, and I have to stop with these first two words. That word, this is talking about Jesus. That, well, the English word says the word. There's, it's a little Greek word that, it, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. That is, a little Greek word called logos. Could you say that with me? It'll make you feel smart. Logos. You just, <laughs> just got it close. Logos. And it simply means the message. It simply means God's thoughts. Now we, most of the time, we as Christians will talk about the word as the Bible. I don't doubt that the Bible is the Word of God, but that's actually not what John says that is the Word. The Bible is actually something that points us to the Word. The Word is a he, not an it. The Word is a person. God's message, God's thoughts. If you want to know, we say this all the time, if you want to know what God thinks about anything, we look at Jesus. The Word, or Jesus, the message became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory... The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, now notice this, full of what? And what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. The law hes contrasting. There's the law, there's these standards, there's the old covenant, God's ideal, what God wanted. But grace was given through Moses. But Grace and truth came through Jesus. When John is trying to describe who Jesus is and how he did things, he's not saying, and and this is where Christians, I think, we we really get messed up. We try to balance the two. Well, if you're going to preach grace, you've got to balance that with truth. And we end up doing this thing. We talk about this occasionally. We say to people, well, now God loves you. Jesus loves you. And I. God knows I love you too. What's the next word? But. Now, can you imagine, ladies, you're about to receive a proposal from the man of your dreams. He gets down on his knees. He has the mariachi band in the back ready to go. I'm not very romantic. That's all I could come up with. Who brings a mariachi band? But he's got the band ready. He's maybe got it on the big screen at the, at the ball game. Whatever. You know, he's set up this thing. He gets down on one knee and he says, My dearest love, I just want you to know I love you with all my heart. You're the most wonderful thing. I love you so much but here's a few things that i came up with that you're going to have to do if we're going to have this deal you think about it and get back with me no you don't feel accepted you don't feel loved we as christians too many times i say it all the time we get our big butts in the way we say i love you but but jesus john's trying to describe him he he wasn't a balance of grace and truth somehow he was full of grace and and he was full of truth. He didn't come and just say, well, anything you want to do is fine. You, you don't have to, you know, there's just, just whatever hits you, whatever feels good, you just do it. But he also didn't come and say, here's the standard, meet it. Here's the policy, you have to obey this before we can even have relationships. Somehow there was a mixture. It, it wasn't a balance. It was 100% grace, yet 100% truth. And it only comes through... That's why we talk about Jesus so much. That combination only comes through Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, No one has ever seen God. Nobody. Nobody has ever understood Him. The word seen. Nobody has ever understood God. But the unique one who is Himself God is near to the Father's heart. He. Once again, the word is a he. The message is a he, a person. God loved us so much He didn't send a book he sent us a person he Jesus reveals who God is to us, so we say this the grace truth tension requires that we present the ideal while embracing the real. We do we understand that we live with a God who has an ideal that he wants to present, but we also live with real people in the real world so let 's look at here Jesus. Uh, explains this to the Pharisees in another place in Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees came and they tried to trap Jesus with this question. They said, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus Jesus, was always, Jesus was, could be very sarcastic. He said this statement to the Pharisees over and over at different times. He said, haven't you read the scriptures? That's all they did. That's the, what they did for a living. They read the scriptures. That's all they did. And Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? Read your Bible, Jesus replied. He said, they record that from the beginning. <clears throat> I'd like to stop and point this out. This is, this is one way that we know we're using Jesus' method of interpreting what God wants. First of all, we look at the Bible through the lens of Jesus. But when there's any question, we look at what did God intend from the beginning? Jesus is saying the way that you find out about what God wants is what did God originally intend? From the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. I'd like to stop and point out, there seems to be no one protesting divorce. Nobody's ever out picketing that we need to make it against the law to divorce somebody. But Jesus had so much to say about divorce, but we seem to ignore that one. I'm going to go on. But now the Pharisees, Jesus said, now here's here's what God intended. The Pharisees then said, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Because they have Scripture. The Pharisees are presenting to Jesus, here is Scripture. The, the Old Testament says all we have to do, if our wife burns the dinner, if our wife does something that displeases us, if she doesn't lived in a, a horribly, horribly male-dominated culture, and they at any time could just simply say to their wife, okay, I'm done with you, and write her, I'm, I'm divorcing you. Goodbye. The Pharisees are saying, well, why does the Bible say we can do that? Then, and Jesus does some, says something very, very revealing here. He said, "Moses, or in other words, the old covenant, the Torah, Moses permitted divorce, only as a concession to your hard hearts." But notice again, but it was not what God had originally intended. Well, this is an amazing thing that Jesus is saying. He's saying there is an ideal that God has when it comes to marriage. A man and a woman, and they need to stay together forever. And the Pharisee says, oh yeah, the Bible says this. And Jesus says, well, the ideal is this, but since God was dealing with people who lived in the real world. See, this is a very interesting subject. I wish I could take like a whole series about this. It's so fascinating for me to talk about, to think about is that there's so much in the Old Testament, it wasn't God's idea to begin with. For example, all of the sacrifices that where they had to bring a sheep, or they had to bring a turtle dove, and they had to go through all this rigmarole, God did not want them to do that. When they first came out of, out of Egypt, and they were headed to the land of promise, and they came up to the mountain called Sinai, God said, have them come up to the mountain. I want to talk to them. God has always wanted relationship. Have them come to me, I just want to talk directly to them and introduce myself. Because they didn't know who God was. He'd just delivered them out of slavery, and God's one of them saying, Hey, this is I want to get to know you, I want relationship. And God began to talk to them, and the people said, Oh stop, tell him to stop talking, we don't want to talk to him. You go talk to him. And because they had a culture and they were doing a sacrificial system anyway, God used what they were already doing to institute this process that would eventually point them to His Redeemer, Jesus. You read all these laws about how they're to sacrifice, but God says later in the Old Testament, oh, by the way, that wasn't my idea. I don't want that. I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to have mercy on the person next to you. I want you to do justice. The things that are going wrong in your community, I want you to fix that. I don't care about these sacrifices. That wasn't my idea to begin with. I use that to point to the fact that there's one that's going to come and become a sacrifice. But it wasn't his idea to begin with. God deals with the real. And um, so we, as Christians, we have to recognize that God has an ideal. We don't deny that. We don't deny that there are things that are right and wrong. And there's a, I'd like to go into that. I just don't have time today. Why they're right and wrong. It's mainly because it affects us. But we live in the middle And we live and love in the middle of the real. We say it this way. At our church, we walk toward the messes. We don't simply present a policy. Here's the rules. Here's the standards. You have to obey this. No, we we embrace. I think the army has an expression that says, embrace the suck. Is that right? I would love for that to be our new tagline. Stonebrook Church, embrace the suck. Because life sucks. It's just awful. There's just things that, aren't the way God intended them. Some of it may be because of you. Some of it may not be because of you. because of the people around you. But we don't try to cover that up. We don't try to hide that. We don't try to gloss over that. We walk toward the messes. Life is messy. Sure, God has an ideal, ideal. But I'm not meeting that yet. You're probably not meeting that yet. So now what do we do? Well, We walk toward the messes. Because it's messy. You you ladies that have had had children, that's a messy thing that's happening there. It's just that first kid comes out. I remember, you know, the first child comes out and for the first week or two it's like, oh, they pooped. They're wonderful. They puked. Oh, bless you darling heart. You puked. And like the second child, they poop and you're like, what are you doing? Why do we have this child? Why can't they go outside like the dogs do? Just tell us. We'll let you outside. But it's, it's messy. It, it's real life. It's And that's that's what living with each other as Christians and and even those of you that are here that wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Life sucks. Our church sucks. Tweet that. Pastor of Stonebrook says his church sucks. It's because everything in this life is just, it's real. And we don't simply ignore that God has an ideal that as we follow Jesus, we will eventually become more and more alike. But in the meantime, there's a real. Um... I'd like to uh, to share this this story. It's I, I don't think I've ever preached from this particular story of Jesus. And those of you that are in the audience that are sort of theological experts, um, I, I love you guys that are like that. I had a really interesting discussion after first service and uh, with a guy, and he was saying, hey, what about this? What about this? And I think he maybe thought I was upset. He was challenging me. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. But I, I realized that this story I'm about to share, it's it's John chapter 8. It's the story of the woman that was caught. In adultery. And for those of you that are, you know, you're Bible scholars, you will recognize that this story is not found in the original manuscripts of the New Testament. You understand that the New Testament was written in Greek. It wasn't written in English. And uh, so the oldest manuscripts do not have this story in them. It doesn't show up till probably the fifth century, maybe early 400s. I don't know. But um, I believe because it, it, it's, its message agrees with so many other places, And because of the oral tradition of the early church, that these stories were passed down. And I sort of view this particular chapter of John, this first part of chapter 8, sort of as the director's cut. You know how you go to a movie, and then they come out on DVD, and they have the director's cut. And this part was, oh, we didn't get that in the show. This has got to get in there. Um, So I I view this as something that actually happened, and something that we can learn, learn from. But I just wanted you guys to know, yes, I know that. We're going to talk about it anyway, because I think this is something that actually happened. In John chapter 8, it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered. And he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law, let's say religious law together. Religious law. law. These guys and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. So they're bringing this girl. I don't know if she's clothed. I mean, it says she was caught in the act. Now, it's always, you know, we'd always like to point out, you know, my, my mom and dad never sat down and had that discussion with me, that talk, birds and bees talk. But my understanding with adultery is there needs to be at least one other person present. Isn't that right? You can't just have adultery with yourself there. there got to be two, it takes two to tango. So here comes this girl. Where's the dude? I don't know. He may be the one that's around the circle. We don't, we don't know. But anyway, here comes this, this lady who's been caught in the act of adultery. And here's what religion does they took her and put her in front of the crowd. Religion loves to expose sin. And so they come up to Jesus. They say, Teacher, uh, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And then they quote Scripture The law of Moses says to stone her. They're right. They've got Scripture, they've got the Bible. But well, what do you say? The law says this. Old Testament says this. What do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Jesus stooped down, wrote in the dust with his, with his finger. He's just taking his time thinking about this. But here you have this conflict. You have this clash of, here's the standard, here's the rules. And here, Jesus, you've got this whole grace thing going on. So are you going to say, oh, that's okay? Are you going to deny what the Bible says? Are you going to ignore the ideal? Here's, we, we got her. What do you say? They kept demanding an answer. So he, Jesus, stood up again and said, All right. Now this is a big deal, because we're talking about grace and truth together. This is an example of not a balance between, but 100% truth, 100% grace. All right. All right. But let the one, the one, who has, what's the next two words? Never sinned? Now this bugs me. This is amazing. Here Jesus is elevating the standard for condemning another person's sin. That the requirement for, for condemning that other person's sin is you must have never sinned. The one that has never sinned, throw the first stone. Now, Jesus' little brother, James, years and years later, will write an epistle or or a letter to the church, and he says these things. It's an amazing statement in James. He says, uh, yes, indeed, it's, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in the Scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, that's actually committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. And then he says this, he gives this amazing standard. For the person who keeps all the laws except how many? We come back to that standard. The standard is perfection. As we're shooting at the target, the standard is every single time. If you break one law, you're as guilty, as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's law. To some of you, this is great news. You're saying, my pastor says, because I believe if you're going to do something, do it right. There's no use trying to keep 99 laws and just doing one right. Go ahead and break them all. Because it's exactly the same. The standard is not, well, you know, I'm pretty good at that. At least I'm not that. And that's why when it comes to the subject of, of gay or, and lesbian or homosexual, so many Christians will say, yeah, but at least I'm not gay. Well, What does that mean? If you are a person that holds one of these views, that a particular particular view that says, I believe homosexuality is a sin, well, have you never sinned? Jesus said the standard for condemnation is the person that has never sinned gets to throw the first stone. Then he stooped down, back to the story again, and wrote in the dust, when his accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. This is a wonderful picture. If you really look at what's happening here, the law leaves when confronted with grace and truth. The law one by one left until only Jesus was left. In the middle of the crowd, I love this part, he's with the woman. This is the thing that Jesus communicated to people. It's the thing that they actually felt. It wasn't just something that he said because he was supposed to. Well, you know, I love you, but. No, people felt, this guy really gets me. He really cares about my life. He's with me. He's not standing up on some podium uh, dispensing uh, information or dispensing the standards that I must meet. No, he's with me. There's something different about the look in his eye. There's something different about the tone in his voice. And he begins to say to her, and then then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Now this is an amazing statement. This is grace and truth. And you have to understand, Jesus said the standard is, and we as believers need to get this, the standard is, the one that has never sinned gets to condemn. She has standing before her the one who has never sinned. He, He meets the qualification. He can say, I have never sinned. Therefore, I am now qualified to cast the first stone. And she says, nobody's accused me. They all left. And Jesus, the only one that's qualified, said, I don't either. Neither do I. And here's the big thing. She felt that. I'm going to try to get through this without crying. In the first service, I just just I couldn't, couldn't take it. I, I wish somehow that I could get this across. That with Jesus, it wasn't simply reading from a book. There was... And we have to get this in our interaction. Since we're to be like Him, when we are to love, when the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. So many Christians are very flippant with that. Well, I do love my neighbor, but that thing they're doing. No, they are not feeling that you really care about them. They still think that the main thing on your mind, in fact, every single time I've heard this particular story preached in a church, the emphasis was always on go sin no more. People will always bring this up to me. Yeah, but Jesus said, go and sin no more. No, He didn't. What He did was make this woman feel that she was not condemned. He brought her into this place where she felt accepted. Where she thought, no matter if I ever change, this guy will still love me. In that place, and only in that place, is it now safe? Has He now earned the right to say to her, don't do that anymore he's now in a relationship where he can speak that into her life. See, God is confirming everything I'm saying right here. Don't you think? Everything. Just perfect timing. Now, I want to close with just a couple other scriptures. I know it's going to be hard to focus. Just take a second and look up at the roof. It's a very interesting thing that we humans do. When it starts raining, we want to look up. Let's look. Yeah, that's rain. That's what that is. And we are in the ark. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. No matter how bad it gets, you know, we're pretty safe, actually, right here. I think, why are there kangaroos at the door? I don't know. This maybe is worse than we think. Okay. When it comes to how are we to deal with sin? How are we to address sin? There's, a very, there's this amazing scripture in, in 2 Corinthians 5, and we're, we're going to end with this. We've got just like two more minutes left. Paul said it this way. He said, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And, and he said, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Now notice, God has given us this task. God is about to tell us as Jesus followers what our job is. Our task is to reconcile people to Him. And he he says it this way, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. This next statement blows me away. No longer counting people's sins against them. Now most people that know Christians, if they said, Okay, tell me, have you ever played this matching game like on Sesame Street? On Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. You can sing along if you like. One of these things just doesn't. I don't, my, kids, my kids have grown and left the house. I don't remember the Sesame Street songs. I can sing Barney songs, though. They, those things stick with you forever. Oh, it's just terrible. You want to talk about sin, Barney. That's right there. There's sin. But no, look at this. No longer counting people's sins against them. When you think of Christian, most people don't think, oh, yeah, they don't count your sins against you. But he said God was in Christ and God is no longer holding people's sins against them. Now notice, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Do you know what we're supposed to be telling people who consider themselves far from God and who are not Jesus followers? We're supposed to be telling them, oh, by the way, God's not holding anything that you're doing against you. No, no problem. Some of us don't like to hear that. Some of you are wondering if I've gone off the deep end. I understand. But here's our message. said we're Christ's ambassadors. God's making His appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. This is what we're supposed to plead with people. Come back to God. He's not mad. He's not holding anything against you. The next, next verse says, For God made Christ who had never sinned. There we are again. The person that never sinned has the right to condemn and throw the first stone, but instead he became the offering for our sin. So that we could... uh, One translation says that he made him to be sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. Our one job. We have one job. Have you ever seen those things? I found a couple of these on the internet. You've seen where it says you had one job. Just show them there. You know, like that where the stairs are going one way. (laughs) And then you got some of the other ones. Like, do not bend. Okay. Okay. This is one of my favorite, actually. you got Pop-Tarts. Oops, what are they called there? Poop-Tarts. That doesn't sound, doesn't sound good at all. I'm afraid when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to say to us, dudes. He may not say dudes. <laughs> he say, Gu- guys, you had one job. Go tell them, I took their sin. I'm not mad at them. Tell them to come back. Now, if you don't believe me, Jesus, and we'll end with this one. Jesus in John chapter sixteen, when he was saying that the Holy Spirit's going to come. I I have to leave, but the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he has one job. He says, in fact, it's better for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit is another name for him, won't come if I do if I do go away, I'll send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of its sin. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sin. What is the world's sin? He tells us in the next verse. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. The only sin that keeps a person from a relationship with God is they don't believe who Jesus is and what he did for them on the cross. It's not that there's this list of things that they're doing wrong that you can go back to the Old Testament and some places even in the New Testament and say, well, here's what the standard is. Here's what the ideal is. God wants this, and you're not doing this. Jesus actually, because on the cross, and let's just go ahead and put that up there. Here's a picture you know, from the movie The Passion of the Christ. And when I think of, in fact, Jesus most clearly, most clearly represents who God is right here. This is the ultimate example of grace and truth. Jesus didn't say, oh no, there's no such thing as sin. No, what you're doing is okay. What he actually said is, yes, what you're doing is terrible. It's destroying you. It's destroying all of God's creation. It's awful. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it myself. I'm going to take the blame. I'm going to absorb your sin. Everything you've ever done, I'm taking it on me. And there, that's the truth. Sin is terrible. But I'm going to take it. The combination of yes, sin is awful truth. But it's my fault. It's not yours. I'm offering you forgiveness. In fact, the Apostle Paul in another place says that he took our sin out of the way. If you think the thing between you getting into a relationship with Jesus is your sin, the Bible actually says that Christ on the cross took it out of the way. It's not the thing that's in the way. The only thing that's in the way of your friends, your family, or maybe even you that are sitting here, of becoming in a relationship with God is, do you believe that that took care of it? And that's the only sin that we're supposed to be telling people that they even have to be concerned about. We have one job, grace and truth. He took the truth of our sin, extended grace and forgiveness to us. Well, Our time is gone. I I just want to pray for us. And we don't do this often. I didn't even do it in the first service, but... As we pray, because so many people, so many people over the past few years, and it's been an amazing thing to me. We don't have a lot of services where we have an altar call or where we pray with people to to accept Christ, but in, in small groups and just in the process of walking together and walking with Jesus, people eventually say, they'll fill out their connect card, oh, I accepted Christ today. Well, we didn't even ask you. So as we pray, if it's something that you've never done, just say to Jesus, you know, I believe that somehow. I don't understand it all, but I believe that, and I want to accept you. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you so much for your Spirit, and I thank you that you help us to see in ways that I haven't been able to explain. Help us to see who Jesus is more and more. Yes, there there is a standard. Yes, there is a way that you want things done, Father, but I'm so glad that you accepted me when I was and still am so far from that. While I was an enemy of yours, you died for me. And I thank you. I could never thank you enough so much for that. For those of, uh, that are here today, Lord, that ha- are finally in their heart, they're saying, you know, I'm beginning to see this, and I want to trust you. I, I accept what Jesus did. I thank you that you you changed their heart even today. You see their heart, and as they, as they say to you, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I want you to be my Lord. They cross over that line into your family. Help us, sir, to be examples of your truth wrapped up in, totally, uh, totally, completely mixed together with your grace, sir. And that as we display your grace and truth, we think and we believe that you will attract people to yourself. As we lift you up, Jesus, we thank you that men will see you and we want us and them to become more like you. We love you, sir. We thank you for all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys, for hanging out a little bit longer with me today. I uh, kept you just a few minutes long. But uh, next week, Dad's Day, it's going to be amazing. Have a great week. We will see you then.